When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. I'll See You in My Dreams stars Blythe Danner in the touching portrayal of a widow and former singer who must confront the reality of having most of her life behind her. It's available on demand now. Also playing on demand is Queen of Earth, starring Mad Men's Elizabeth Moss as Catherine, a woman whose vacation at the lake with her best friend slowly turns into a psychological breakdown. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on our latest episode, Marion Cotillard has one weekend to save her job as we review two days, one night. Now, she actually has the whole weekend to save her job, so shouldn't that be two days and two nights? Yeah, thank you, Captain Semantics. Uh, you're extremely welcome, Lieutenant Sincerity. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all featuring a common theme. And inspired by two days, comma, one night, we were going to review movies that had the word day or night in the title. Day for Night, Six Days, Seven Nights, Seven Days in May, Night of the Hunter, X-Men Days of Future Past, Independence Day, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Day of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Run All Night, Friday Night Lights, Friday Night Lights, a TV show, Nightcrawler. But then we were worried there wouldn't be enough options to choose from. Too narrow a category. So instead, we're going to talk about movies like Two Days, Comma, One Night that are about office life and the world of work and jobs. But first up, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. And Allison, you have our picks. What are they? Well, first up is a movie I've really been looking forward to and can't wait to finally have a moment to watch and hopefully enjoy. It is When Animals Dream, which is now available on demand. This is the Danish dramatic horror film a werewolf movie uh it's also the feature debut of jonas alexander ernby and it was at Cannes last year and i think has also kind of made some of the genre fest rounds but it stars sonia sewell as this teenager who's growing up in this remote fishing village who discovers you know as you do that she's transforming into a werewolf some comparisons to movies like Ginger Snaps and Let the Right One In, which are the kind of movies I like a lot. Mm -hmm. Just exactly the kind of like horror movie meets uh, terrifying coming of age. You know, that's a good sweet spot. So I'm looking forward to checking that out when animals dream. Uh, and then two more that are also now available on demand and that are got some great names in here that I'm looking forward to catching up with. The first is Digging for Fire, which is the latest film from Joe Swanberg for the moment. Maybe he's probably made 
three or four already <laughs> since then. But, you know, Swanberg, the, one, the prince of mumblecore, who has been moving on to working with uh, more famous actors recently and a little bigger budgets with films like Drinking Buddies and Happy Christmas. Um, and this one is co-written by Swanberg and his star Jake Johnson uh, from New Girl, who was also in Drinking Buddies. And it uh, stars Johnson, Rosemary DeWitt, Orlando Bloom, Brie Larson, Sam Rockwell, Anna Kendrick, and Mike Birbiglia. So quite the cast there. And is about uh, the discovery of possible evidence of a murder in the backyard of a home, which kind of sends a husband and wife uh, on this emotional journey. And uh, I'm always curious to see about how someone who comes from such a very distinctive way of working as Swanberg, who really likes you know, improvisation and keeping things very loose, uh, how he kind of works with a cast that is uh, maybe more used to working in different ways or, or maybe looking forward for it to, for, you know, to take a chance to improvise like that. So that's Digging for Fire. And finally, we have Z for Zachariah, also now available on demand. The latest film from Craig Zobel, who is a filmmaker we like a lot. We have talked about his last film, Compliance. On he was a podcast. guest on the show to talk he about was. it. That was our live show, in That's fact. Right. Yeah. So, um, so we both like a lot. This is his chance at working with some bigger stars in a bigger budget. It is an adaptation of the, I think, 1970s sci-fi novel by Robert C. O'Brien, uh, about the end of the world and the few survivors and how they deal with each other. And this film stars Margot Robbie, Chris Pine, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. Uh, I, I, do pr- I would say I prefer Craig's earlier two films. This one's very different and maybe a little more straightforward in how it's made. But it does have a great performance from Chiwetel Ejiofor as, as one of the people surviving in a possibly otherwise mostly toxic environment that's left over of the, of the earth. So that is Z for Zachariah, and it is also now available on demand. C'est pour ça que j'ai pas voté pour toi vendredi. Ce n'est pas pour la prime. Moi, j'ai pas d'ancienneté. C'est seulement 150 euros. Jean-Marc, t'as parlé? J'y vais. Tantôt. Au revoir. Au revoir. Your options for this episode's listener's choice were three female-centric films. We had Kristen Wiig in Welcome to Me, Get, The Trial of Vivian Anselm, and Two Days, One Night, which was the runaway winner with more than 56% of the vote. It's the latest film from Belgian directors Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne, and it stars Marion Cotillard as Sandra, a woman who returns to her job at a small solar panel factory after a long absence to find herself on the verge of being laid off. The company realized while she was gone that they could run just fine without her, and they convinced the other employees to accept a 1,000 euro bonus in exchange for the overtime they'd need to do to pick up the slack. But Sandra is then able to convince her boss to agree to a second vote, and she has the weekend to visit all 16 of her coworkers to agree to forego their hard-earned bonuses so that she won't be out of a job. I think that's a good place to start, Allison. The fact that Sandra has 16 people to convince and the Dardan brothers follow her as she systematically goes to every single one of them. It's hard to argue that Cotillard, who earned an Oscar nomination for the film, is anything less than exceptional. But what did you make of Two Days, One Night's structure? What did you make of its deliberately repetitive nature? Can you make a case for that approach or would you have preferred it? If the Dardans had maybe skipped a couple of those conversations. I I think 
if someone had described the film to me, I would have been leery of the idea that it is so, I don't know, almost episodic in the way it just involves each it, each one as an episode. She has mm-hmm. to confront each coworker. But I think that in practice, it both creates a sense of this like marathon jur- emotional journey she has to go through. She can't skip someone. Mm. She can't. You know, she right. has to do this work. She has no choice, really, which is part of... I think what makes the film so powerful as it goes along is that it is someone realizing she has no choice if she wants this, that she is the one who has to, to fight for it. Uh, and, and that I think the ways, the variety of responses and how unexpected some of them are, I think keeps it fresh despite the fact that essentially she's making the same pitch again and again and again, the same speech. Please let me keep my job. Right. Please surrender this money that you might need a lot. Right. Uh, and let me stay. But I think that there are there is enough variety and there are enough surprises there. And it's the Dardens, and I feel like they are so rooted in emotional honesty that like it it, it worked for me. But I don't know. How about you, Matt? No, I agree. Um I I I agree exactly what, what you said, where if you described that it is 16 and I didn't realize that it was that many people and that we were going to see her visit every single one or maybe she calls one or two but basically visit or talk to every single person on this list of 16 people uh, if I did not know that and if I had known that I probably would have used as you said probably have been a little wary but I think it is interesting to watch her as you know her sales pitch evolve the things that she says every single time, as you said, some things she repeats every time or uses a lot of the timelines like, you know, like it's not my fault that uh, that they made you, uh, you know, choose between them. I'm sorry that, you know, but and I, and I liked a lot of the variety of people that she visits and how they're all doing different things. You know, we it's, it's their weekend. Right. And it's it, it's all set over a weekend. So some people are working another job. Some people are playing soccer. Some people are hanging out with their kids. There's all these different things. And we really get to see kind of this uh, variety. And it's also, in a way, a very low-key detective story because she has to find all these people. And, and it is sort of interesting to watch her go see someone and say, oh, this person's not here. They'll be back. Or, oh, this person's over here. You can go talk to them there. Or I don't know where they are or whatever it is. Like – the fact that she has to track all these people down and she's at times not very motivated at all, at all, I think makes it a very unusual but also very compelling, while it's very low-key, detective story. The thing that I didn't really care for, and we could talk about it later or we can talk about it now, was not so much the ending, but there is a big thing that happens towards the end of this movie, specifically to Sandra, to Marion Cotillard's character. Uh, perhaps she does it to herself. I found that 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 and the fallout from that moment seemed completely at odds tonally with the rest of the movie. I had a real problem with it. Oh, that's interesting. It felt like to me it was out. It was not from that the movie we had watched up to that point. Oh, see, I felt like uh, I mean the movie sets up, and one of the things I actually think is the reason this works so well for me, mm-hmm. and this was one of my favorite films of last year, is that. She is not a scrappy heroine, right? Right. She is someone who has suffered from depression. Yes. That's the reason that she had to take time off from the job to begin with. Mm -hmm. She is someone who is very ready to crawl into bed and not engage with this, like, very urgent thing that's coming up. Right. But on the same, uh, in the same way, 
she also is very realistically concerned that if she has no job anymore and no structure in her life, that she will go spiral back into depression. Mm -hmm. And I think that the thing that happens just underlines that she is actually really fighting for her life. And I think that as much as it is, it's more dramatic than I think the rest of the film necessarily sets up. Mm -hmm. It also underscores that it's not just, this is not just a story of someone being like, well, we're going to be down to one income. Like it's not just as serious as that can be. It is not just that, you know, in some ways more than other Darden protagonists, like the, the characters in this have a slightly more stable life. Mm -hmm. You know, they have like a decent house. Right. They've had like, they're both working blue collar jobs, but they both like she and her husband are both working. They have to, you know, they can order takeout. They, they, they're not in as precarious an economic position as other, as other characters in the Dardenne films have been in the past. But I think that the fact that that happens is just also proof that this is not just someone fighting for a job because they need the money. It's someone fighting for a job because it is like the key to her emotional well-being. Right. And I get that. I, 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 obviously, we're trying not to spoil a, a big a sort of twist or event in this movie. And I'll try to be as delicate as, as I can here. The problem I, I had wasn't necessarily the act, the thing that happens, which I thought was filmed really powerfully and amazingly. It was more the the fallout of the event and also sort of the ease with which that event is sort of put aside. It seemed a little I don't know, but you as you said, this character has had some really hard uh emotional issues to get through. And it seemed like at a moment's notice, they're all sort of got, "Nope, oh, I'm I, I'm better now. I'm fine. Let's let's do this. Let's do that." You know, and it, and it just seemed I don't know. It seemed almost like a like a, a chintzy Hollywood movie thing to do, yeah. Um, and not something that the Dardan brothers, and particularly in a movie that is about this, like as you we've already said, how difficult it is to go through all of these people. They're not cutting any corners. There's no shortcuts here. You are going to go on this intense emotional journey with this woman, and you're going to see how hard it is. And then at the end, I don't know, at the end of the movie, it, it just seemed like whoop, it all kind of uh, evaporates and dissipates in a way that I found very unsatisfying. See, I feel like that speaks, though, to how wrestling with depression can be, you mm -hmm. know, that there are times where it feels like you've got it, you've beat it, like it's done. You, right. you can never even see any sense of it on the horizon again. But that doesn't mean that it's gone in any way you know and i felt like as much as there is a there is triumph at the end of this movie mm -hmm. and like very hard won triumph that i don't know that i didn't feel like it was as kind of like blue skies as that necessarily yeah. i mean i do feel like there's certainly like huge discussions to be had over right. you know that like they should probably go home and have a serious talk yeah but <laughs> which they but, haven't yeah. had yet yeah but, but i i don't i mean i I mean, aside from that and the fact that I feel like it maybe skirts that a little bit, uh, I don't know. It didn't bother me, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, – I, I don't know. It, maybe it's it's me, uh, you know, not not judging the movie but, like, judging what the movie I kind of wanted it to be. I don't know if that's not fair. But I, th this, is, this is just what I was wrestling with when I was watching it. And it's not like the movie doesn't – I mean, we keep using words like low-key and subtle and things like that. It's not like this movie doesn't have like a story, a plot, something it's driving towards. It absolutely does. It's it very has... suspenseful. Absolutely. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's not like the movie doesn't have drama and it needs some kind of big, tumultuous 
second act twist to to drive you to the third act. I mean, it's already plenty suspenseful enough as you're going through these people and one person is saying absolutely not and another person is saying yes, I will I will vote for you and another person says I will do it, but and another person says I won't do it, but I'm sorry. It, like it and 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 they're constantly saying, "Okay, I have seven people on my side. I have not eight people, whatever it is." So you you're able to follow along and know exactly where you are, what time of day it is, what you have to do. Like I was wrapped up in the story enough that actually this big thing that happened kind of took me out of the story, um, as opposed to really ratcheting up the stakes, which is I guess what it's supposed to do. Yeah, I I mean like I understand your complaint. Uh, I I do feel that. I don't know. I, the thing that this movie does so well, which I spoke, I spoken to a little already, is that I, it, it is not about someone who is innately heroic, right? And I think the deliberate ordinariness of her, and mm. ironically, she's played by the most famous performer that the Dardens have ever worked with. You know, they're they're people who have often chosen to work with first time actors or actors who have gone on to become famous. You know, like Jeremy Renier, but like. Cotillard is a big star going like very normcore in this role <laughs> yeah. and is fantastic in it. But uh, I, it really very deliberately, as much as she has, she is a distinct person with a lot of, you know, a very specific life and home life. Uh, she is not the, a, a special person. And, and I think that that makes the transformation like, or just like the kind of work she has to do, so much more meaningful right you know that she's I, I think as a lot of us can probably understand she doesn't want to have to go to her coworkers and beg for her job of course she feels it is innately unfair which it is yes. it is innately unfair that that responsibility no, it's a no-win situation her. right and yet the ways in which she kind of grows stronger her voice grows stronger in asking for this and feeling like it is her right to ask for this mm. over the course of the movie i think is pretty spectacularly done yeah i guess the ish, the word that you said that i would probably point to as the the one that i had an issue with was transformation that just that they don't really seem like i don't know this movie doesn't feel like it needs transformation necessarily in terms of like a big transformation well, i don't think she necessarily transforms as a person but she transforms in her sense of right in the beginning she cries she's like no one cares right Basically, when I wasn't there and they all voted to take the money instead of me. Right. And I think what she comes to learn is not it's not that nobody is that she has a right to demand that they care, you know, and that it is not shameful to ask that they care. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I mean, it's about as compelling a kind of drama about worker solidarity <laughs> I, you know, as certainly has come out in theaters in a long time. I, I will agree with you that Marion Cotillard fits perfectly with the Dardan's aesthetic, that she's fantastic. As you said, that they don't usually work with big movie stars uh, of a caliber of hers. And, you know, it's funny, like, she is such a, you know, beautiful, glamorous actress. It doesn't, f you called it normcore. It doesn't feel like she's sort of, like, uglying herself or trying to act poor or like a normal person, quote unquote, whatever. It, it just fits. It doesn't seem like a put on or anything like that, that she works perfectly in this movie. I think that's to her credit. That's to the Dardan's credit. She's, she's great. She's, I have no problem with her whatsoever. And I, I think, uh, I, I, I thought she was absolutely fabulous in it. I totally, you know, uh, understood why she got nominated for an Oscar, 
uh, had no problem with that at all. So, yeah, I, I thought she was fantastic. And I liked the husband, too. Uh, Fabrizio Rangioni. I don't know him as an actor at all, but I thought he was fabulous as well. Like, yeah. he doesn't have a huge part, but I thought that his role and his performance was really perfectly attuned to hers. He brings a lot of history to their relationship mm-hmm. without it ever needing to really be spelled out. Right. Like, there's like a great scene where the sad song comes on the radio and he changes it, right? Like, he turns it off. Right. And she notices and is like, I know what you're doing. And I thought like the way the like amount of history that's kind of loaded into that, it was so nicely done and yeah. kind of nicely fleshed out. Yeah. And I, I just think that the, I, I think this was the premise is of this movie is just so perfect for, especially for like right now, you know, for this world where we're all struggling economically and that, that sort of central dilemma of, what do you do in this situation? And getting to see how so many different people react to it in the film. That's the I think the other strength of the like sort of the repetitive nature of the movie is that you get to see this this sort of this cross section of life and you get to consider your how your own reaction would be, you know, and it's it's not necessarily that anyone in the movie is necessarily bad. Well, there's maybe one or two guys well, who are a little bit yeah, they're kind of I, mean, I think but that even those those reactions are some of actually the most believable to me mm. are the people who came who are furious at her right you know like some people the the people who are like refuse to answer the doorbell or like who don't really can't don't want to look her in the eye right are maybe the most expected mm. but the guys who are angry mm. who kind of are almost like directing all of this general anger at her right that was there's something like very authentic about that oh I interesting thought. yeah interesting that I just, it seemed you have a lot of b- built up frustration allison not me but i feel like that as like <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's uh, something that you see in a lot of uh, angry political discourse mm. on the internet yes. as well. It gets aimed at someone, someone yes, yeah. and usually it's a weaker person that yes. you know it's it's bullying. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah, no, you're right that that is a, another interesting thing to observe about it. But I, yeah, I just putting you in that in that situation. I even like there was like the 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 the, the family that clearly lives in a nicer house, but. They're building a. They need to build a wall. Their their house is leaking. They they can't live here. You know, it's just right. like everyone. Like almost everyone says the same thing, which is like, oh, I really need that money. And and whether it's true or not, like they all have a reason. And it's like we could all have. We all have a reason why we could all use a thousand dollars right now. Right, that we it's something we could use. Right. Yeah. And it just it makes you wonder what would you do for um for someone someone at your job someone maybe you've never met or hardly know or like what would you do It's like uh, I love a movie that'll that'll really let you dwell on that as this movie does for like ninety five minutes That's a lot of fun to me. Yeah, it is. And I it's funny. I remember reading someone recently saying like I can't believe like I couldn't. It was hard for me to watch this movie because I just couldn't believe that the, people would be so cruel to her to her face. Which this person has never been has, on the internet, clearly. Well, and also just like, I'm like, have you never had a job where you've been placed in competition with people or kind of placed in a scenario where like someone's got to go? Like, right. I, I feel like this movie addresses so well the ways in which workers can be played off one another. Absolutely. And you, you know, and pitted against each other and, you know, told that it's you or someone else. Right. And that it it, it speaks to this whole world of how that can work and how... You know, as the boss says in the beginning, like, I'm getting a lot of, like, competition from, like, Asian solar panel makers. Yes. And so this is why. It's not my fault. It's uh, it's capitalism, basically. Right. But that, like, the ways in which those those choices just basically get directly put on or, like, you know, uh, transferred to 
two employees. Yeah. The solar panel thing is a nice touch, too, because we think here solar panel, we think nobility and the environment, right. that it's all, you know, that solar panels are this inherently good force in the universe. And maybe in some ways they are, but that still, someone's got to make them and someone's got to make yeah, them. Yeah, it's still a factory. Someone's got to make money off of making them. And, you know, that, uh, that, 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 that doesn't excuse them from the forces of capitalism. So, yeah, I thought that was a nice little touch, too. Uh, yeah, so I, not my favorite Dardan Brothers movie. Definitely. I had a few, like I said, I, the, the the third act really, I don't know. There's some things about it I didn't particularly care for, but great performance by Marion Cotillard. A great premise that's pretty well handled and certainly a movie I would recommend for sure. Yeah, and I I love this one. Uh, like I said, it was one of my favorite, favorite movies from last year and agree that Cotillard is, is fantastic in this and in a way that really kind of runs counter to the the showy the traditional showy Oscar performance, it's, right? You know, in in so many ways, while also just being really phenomenal. So that is two days, one night, and it is now streaming on Netflix. Now that your pictures in the paper being perfectly admired, you can have it all that you have ever desired. All you gotta tell me now is why. Days one night, we are going to be looking at some other movies on streaming that deal with the workplace, the workers, maybe in the office or in the factory, or you know, labor. That's what we're going to talk about this time. Matt, do you have any thoughts in general on this topic? Um, I don't know if I have a ton of general thoughts. I did want to mention though, there are this is a it's a pretty big category. If you define it, you can kind of define it pretty loosely. Um, we have talked about some movies that definitely I think would would come to mind. Movies like The Apartment, we talked yeah. about on SVU number fifty one. On episode number fifty four, we did an episode devoted to Kevin Spacey movies, and there are two I think that were t- we talked about on that show. Actually, now that I'm looking at the episode, there were really three we could have talked about. Glengarry Glen Ross, mm-hmm. Swimming with Sharks, yes. and Margin Call, all movies oh, yeah. about the workplace and office politics and the misery of of labor. So those are all those are all and I really House of Cards, I think, I in a certain say, way. Yeah, it's definitely like a, a kind of like big stage workplace movie. Right. It's office politics. But the pol- the office is politics. That's almost, that could almost be the terrible tagline of House of Cards. <laughs> it's office politics. But in this office, the office is politics. House of Cards, new on Netflix. I'll call Netflix right away. Yeah, you should. That's I should be getting paid for this. Uh, there's a few others that are available on Netflix that we're not going to talk about that I just thought I would throw out there really quickly. In the Loop, another good one. Uh, Clerks, Kevin Smith's Clerks. Uh, the IT Crowd, the TV show. Drinking Buddies, which you've already mentioned on this show, Joe Swanberg's movie. It's also, it's at, you know, it's set in a factory in a at a brewery, I believe. Definitely uh, would apply. Um, and let's see, would you call Jerry Maguire an office uh, work movie? Interesting. Yeah, a bit. A little bit. Yeah. I don't. Also, I don't think we're touching on any of the kind of great tradition of like union movies. True. In, in this podcast, that could be its whole, own separate it could be thing. Its own podcast, really. Right. Uh, and then just one one documentary that I saw as I was researching that I thought would definitely apply, but 
Enron, the smartest guys in the room, yes. I think would be a very good one for this topic. That's available on Netflix right now. So there's a lot out there if you're looking to make like a little marathon of office or work movies. They are available. And we haven't even really mentioned a few of the, the, the big ones, too, there. So, Allison, do you want to go first with your first pick? Sure, I'll go first. First up, I wanted to talk about a film uh, that is now streaming on Amazon Prime and on Hulu. And that it looks at workers in, you know, what is really right now maybe the most interesting and fast-changing economy in the world, which is China. It's Last Train Home, uh, which is a documentary by Li Xin Fan, uh, who also shot the film and has a really good eye for uh, the opening shot of this movie alone, which is the giant crowds who are getting ready to get on a train to go home for Chinese New Year. And the, the characters, the main characters who are kind of lost in this like huge horde of people. Um, but it is about, uh, as the movie starts out, it's about the over... 130 million migrant workers in China who basically live in cities, in the cities where they can get work, the higher paying work, and they send their money home to uh, the more rural places they're from, but also only really get to travel home once a year during Chinese New Year. So it becomes this really massive and kind of stressful and difficult um, way to finally go back and see their families and it this movie is about a couple who are living in guangzhou which is this large city outside of hong kong my sister actually lived there for years who have come from a village in sichuan about two days away by train which is something to think about by itself already is uh, when you have maybe 10 days of holiday the whole year and it takes two days to go home and two days to get back but they uh left their children, their two kids behind with in-laws to go to Guangzhou to work and live in these like dorm housing basically and work at a garment factory and have, have done this. Essentially their kids have grown up without them there for years. Like their baby, their baby daughter who is now a teenager has grown up with only seeing them a few days a year. And the movie lays out both the amount of work they do and the kind of diligence they've had towards sending this money home and trying to create a better life for their children. And then their teenage daughter, who is now a six, like I think 16 years old and rebellious and kind of resentful of being told to try harder at school when everyone in the village has dropped out to go find, you know, well-paid factory work somewhere. And this divide between these parents who have basically accepted tremendous sacrifices to uh, lift their children up a class level. And then their children who are, are kind of starting to say like, I want to work and I want to have money that I want to spend on myself, <laughs> you know, like, like a modern person who is able to buy things and products and have a good time uh, becomes this main and really heart wrenching sense of uh, source of drama in this movie. It's, it's a really fantastic and really strikingly shot look at the realities of, of kind of this basically like giant migration. Um, it's also, I will say one thing about it that I find a little jarring going back and rewatching some of it, their interviews, the way, or uh, there are no like interviews to the camera or very few of them from what I remember. And uh, instead, I think there are shots that are set up where the, the two characters, the two subjects will talk about things that are going on uh, to, the, to each other in a way that feels prompted. 
And I think it's a little jarring at first, but it's something you kind of get used to. And I, it is really just like a heartbreaking movie in just how a family can be stretched, you know, in its attempts to uh, basically move up the ladder and look for, for better things um, and, and to kind of improve the lives of their children. So that is Last Train Home, and it is streaming on Amazon Prime and on Hulu. All right, that's one I've always heard great things about. I still haven't seen it. I gotta add that one to which which site is that available on? Amazon Prime and Hulu. Okay, doesn't yes. have a, those don't have my lists, but Amazon whatever. Amazon Prime does. Well, it's not called a my list. You're right. It's a watch is. list. There you go. Which sounds a little more ominous when I say it out loud. I'm putting it on my watch list. <laughs> that's what it's called. I, I was know. just looking at it. Maybe we need to rethink that name. Anyway, my first pick. Very different film. It's from 1980. It's directed by a man named Colin Higgins. And it is called 9 to 5, which is currently available on Netflix and Amazon Prime, so you can add it to your watch list. The film is about uh, three disparate women who unite to get revenge on their sleazebag sexist boss at, do you know the name of the company that they work at, Allison? It's been a while. Consolidated Companies, which is a pretty fabulous (laughs) name. It is a depressing land of uh, office spies, identical desks, no personality, and psychotic Xerox machines. And you have Lily Tomlin as the efficient department head who's been passed over time after time for jobs, most recently by Franklin Hart Jr., the aforementioned sleazebag sexist who's played very well by Dabney Coleman. And Jane Fonda is a former housewife who's got to get the first job in her life, basically, after she is divorced by her husband after he leaves her for his secretary. And Dolly Harton plays Franklin Hart's secretary, and he would love to divorce his wife and shack up with her, but she continually uh, rejects his sexual harassment. They each have their own reasons to hate Franklin Hart Jr. and the shared one of him being a misogynistic pig to all of them. So they hatch this scheme to kidnap him while they improve the workplace and collect evidence to get him fired, basically. Uh, It's a great setup for a movie, and all three women and Dabney Coleman are really fantastic. They're worth recommending all on their own, which is kind of good because I actually don't love the movie once it gets going. I watched this for the first time last night, and I love the premise. I love the characters, and then the the, the sort of second half of the movie didn't really grab me the same way. The early scenes have this this sharp kind of satire of office culture, and it has – talk about important ideas like sexism and the boys club of of corporations stuff we don't see a lot in movies even to this day 35 years later but once they've sort of addressed the topic i don't you said it's been a while Allison. i don't know if you remember like once they like get into that they like immediately retreat to uh safer ground there's this long chunk of the movie that is about the three female leads fantasies of murdering their boss And those aren't particularly funny. And then there's this very long sequence where Lily Tomlin thinks she's poisoned Dabney Coleman, but she hasn't. And then she thinks she's stolen his dead body from the hospital, but she hasn't. And suddenly this very smart comedy has become a very dub and not particularly funny comedy. So honestly, watching this movie for the first time last night, Allison, I'm sitting there and I'm going like – was there some sort of Hollywood uh, sexism going on that prevented this movie from actually <laughs> tackling, like, seriously uh, sexism? I mean, I know it's a comedy, but, you know, it, it starts off as a very pointed comedy talking about the workplace, and then suddenly it has nothing to do with anything, and it's just goofiness and hijinks. 
and not particularly funny ones. And I was just wondering if there was someone who was kind of trying to downplay that or, you know, like worried what would happen if they actually addressed these serious issues. I don't know, but I was a little disappointed by that. I would still recommend the movie uh, with a with, you know, with that qualification for the performers, particularly Dolly Parton, who's fantastic. And I really enjoyed those early scenes. They reminded me of The Apartment, which we've already mentioned. Those early scenes the office of consolidated very looks very similar and just the sort of attitude it has toward the workplace and and the nine to five grind definitely reminded me of that the later scenes not so much but interesting to see a 35 year old movie tackling sexism something we still see unfortunately way too often online and all these different places i was just reading about amazon and uh yeah you know like uh, the things going on there in their workplace so it, these issues have not gone away uh, in a certain sense, I was almost like, man, maybe it's time to remake 9 to 5 and do it real go, – go at it full force, not just kind of sidestep some of the issues. I think that there could be something really there. And, of course, the song, 9 to 5. Oh, it's a fantastic Fantastic. Song. Absolutely fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. So a mild recommendation, but I think it's a movie worth watching. Uh, maybe it's time for an update, though. That's 9 to 5. You can watch it now on Netflix or on Amazon Prime. All right. Well, my next recommendation is – a movie that technically is a, about military service, though I think the thing that's great about it is that its soul is very much a workplace comedy. Mm. It is Zero Motivation, Aha. which is available for rents and, uh, you know, as an extra, is also streaming on Netflix. This is an Israeli film written and directed by Talia Lavi. It's her debut and was a big hit in Israel and based on her own experiences in uh, the mandatory Israeli defense forces, the two years that everyone has to do. Um, and this specifically focuses on women and women who are working at this combat base that's kind of out in the desert in the middle of nowhere, where they are all doing just grinding secretarial work. They're just incredibly boring secretarial work. And it focuses on two characters, Zohar, who's played by Dana Ivgi, who has like this exact same eyebrows as Michael Imperioli. It's very impressive. And Daffy, who's played by Nellie Tegar. And they are both, their days are just made up of just grinding bureaucracy. And uh, their jobs are ridiculous. Their jobs are like one is in charge of shredding paper, paperwork, and the other is in charge of like getting things mailed. And most of the time they spend their days, uh, Daffy spends her days sending letters to like general departments all over the place asking to be transferred to Tel Aviv, where she has fantasies of getting to drink iced coffee and lead a more glamorous life in the city. Whereas Zohar has dedicated her life to setting records in Minesweeper on the computers, which are not terribly new or up to date. It's, uh, it's an episodic movie. But also, it, it has a, a plan in place that I think it, it builds up to very nicely. But it's it's very much uh, a movie that has a lightness to it, and then dark things flicker up uh, from time to time, including one storyline in which a newcomer comes to the, the office and... Uh, it goes to much grimmer places than you, than it seems to in the be it seems like it's headed in the beginning, but in dealing with just basically like awkward comedy it 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 kind of i i think and I, this movie got a lot of got some complaints for never 
even touching on the larger Israeli-Palestine conflict. It never comes up. People, these characters are told repeatedly, again and again, like, we're at a war. This is important work. You know, like, uh, kind of um, do it for your country. But it's really hard to take that seriously when your job is to shred paper, Mm. like, or guard the staple gun, the precious staple gun, the most important thing in the office. And uh, I, I think that in some ways that becomes the most... That becomes its own kind of statement, which is that the characters don't think about it at all. They're all like, you know, in their late teen years or early 20s. And they they all they care about is like finishing up for the most part. There is a character who wants to stay and make a career. And she's in some ways the kind of most poignant, sad character of them all just in what happens to her. But I really like this movie. It does feel like it's a little rough. It's it's still very much a first film but it offers a look into this world that's very funny and very depressing and uh, very sharply written and I liked it a lot and just the idea of this the worst office place in the world it's like being stuck at a terrible temp job but you have no choice and it's out in the middle of nowhere. And you also have to live in the barracks with all of your coworkers who you don't really like that much. And everyone wears a uniform. Um, so that is Zero Motivation. And it is available for rent everywhere and also streaming on Netflix. That's another one I haven't seen. I've also heard really good things about it. And you're making it sound good as well. So I'm going to have to... That one, that one was on Netflix. So yes. I'll have to... That one I can my list. I don't watch list it. I can my list it. You can watch it after putting it on your my list. Correct. Correct. All right. I'm going to have to do that right now. Uh, my second pick uh, is a film... Actually, I think we mentioned briefly earlier on the show. Uh, it's a movie we showed at our one live uh, podcast, which we did a few years ago, where we interviewed the director and star of the movie over Skype. But we never actually reviewed it on the show and that is Craig Zobel's very divisive 2012 film Compliance, which is available now on Netflix and Amazon Prime as well. It is closely based on a true story about a man who was prank-calling grocery stores and fast food joints around the country claiming to be a police officer and then instructing the employees to do these horrible things to one another on his behalf. And in the case of the film, which is set at a fictional restaurant known as Chick Witch – and Dowd plays Sandra. Huh, another Sandra. Another, another movie about huh. office life or working life about a woman named Sandra. Uh, she is the manager of this little fast food restaurant. She gets a call from a guy claiming to be Officer Daniels, who's played uh, or at least voiced by Pat Healy. And Officer Daniels claims that one of her employees, played by Dreamo Walker, has stolen something, and he needs her to detain her and question her until he arrives. And Sandra takes what he says at face value. She follows his instructions, and ultimately she and some of her uh, other coworkers and actually even her fiancé do some horrible things to this employee on, on the behalf of Officer Daniels. And I mentioned the film was divisive. And as I recall, having conversations with people about the movie, a lot of it had to do with the events that were depicted in the movie, which are really horrifying and disturbing, and to some people seemed ridiculous and implausible. And I remember having people saying, well, this is absurd, and it's the way it's handled is so out over the top, and it's outrageous, and it's hard to believe this story. But if you read about the actual incident, basically every single important thing that happens in the movie happened in real life. And where in real life it was apparently all captured on security cameras. So we're not even like uh, uh, listening to one particular person's account of what happened. They have security camera footage of all of this. And 
I don't know, maybe people just didn't want to believe that this horrifying thing could happen. But I do think, uh, even though this movie is not necessarily like 9 to 5, it's not set in an office or anything like that, I do think it does speak to work culture and, and the role of authority and hierarchy and how when someone is in charge – you listen to them or when someone claims to be a police officer, you, you know, their authority, how easily people just kind of give over to the person in charge. Yeah. And I should say uh, two days, one night is not set in an office either. It's True. It's a factory. a factory floor. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah, certainly something very her like I, maybe this you don't want to believe. Yeah. But like that, like as Anne Dowd portrays that character, she someone who has enough authority to, to have to watch over this like tiny kingdom, right. but also no authority beyond that at all. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I do think it is – I mean, granted, the things that happen in the movie are – to a certain extent, they are absurd, and it does seem outrageous. But, I mean, that's sort of the point is that that – uh, th- that people in these s- situations – and it's like you know people talk about the Milgram experiment, the famous experiment that has sort of a similar – uh, the similar end goal, which is to see how far people will will go when someone else is making the decisions for them. What will they do when they don't when they're not responsible? Right. When they can say, well, I, I was just doing what I was told. Right. And I think we don't want to believe that that other people and also ourselves, that if we were in this situation, we wouldn't do this, that we would see through it, that we would. Uh, we would call the, the 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 criminals bluff, the guy pretending to be the cops. We wouldn't go along with it. But I think the scary thing about the movie is that these people did and a lot of people would. So I think that there is a there is a there's a lot to be had in this movie. It is not an easy film to watch. Uh, it's not a kind of movie you're going to want to watch over and over again. But I do think it's a movie worth watching once and thinking about and having to wrestle with. And I was glad that we got to talk to. Pat Healy and Craig Zobel actually uh, after the film when we watched it with our our live show that was really great we should do something like that again sometime so uh, that is compliance and it is available now on Netflix and Amazon well I think this segment which is usually called what is it called Allison right let's just move on it's singer and one more <laughs> completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup I mean it's going to be really succinct and concise this week because we are in late late. Late August. I mean, it is it is the late late of the late August, and this time of year has now become. I would say, I would argue, maybe even worse than uh, January, February. Yeah. I would say, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the combination of transporter refueled. I think it's called and yes. Hitman Agent Forty Seven, which like, I saw. Right. I neither of us has seen Transporter Refueled yet, but like those are two franchises that the world has not been crying out to have rebooted with right. new, less famous stars. By any means. It's not a reboot. It's a refuel. Thank you. Transporter yeah. refueled. Did yeah. you not see the title? He's refueled. I got it. Uh, Transporter went to the gas station and got more gas. But uh, we uh, neither of us has seen the other big film that is opening this week, which is Walk in the Woods. Starring right. Robert Redford and Nick Nolte. I'm sure it's a spry <laughs> Young well, we were just looking at a tweet. Kids. We were just looking at a tweet by Tasha Robinson, the the fine critic, formerly of the Dissolved, who tweeted recently, uh, I think last week, something about. I assume she had just seen the movie, perhaps that Robert Redford plays a man in his mid forties in the film. I, I Robert know, Redford is seventy nine years now old. Now I kind of want to see it. I, I hadn't. I had no plans to, but that's insane. <laughs> Wait, if his character is in his mid forties, like when would he be? Bo- when would he be born? If he was in the, his mid forties. 
like se- like late 60s early 70s yeah. which would mean when he was in all the president's men he was like four years old <laughs> oh. damn it that's ridiculous um, oh, we should also, i also wanted to mention um i don't think either of us saw what what i think was the number two movie this past weekend or this weekend as we're recording this which is war room no i did not see it faith-based movie that like m- many faith-based movies that often perform very well at the box office, they don't get a publicist who even bothers with mainstream right. press. You don't even hear about it. They don't advertise I in didn't. a lot of mainstream spaces. But that was like a big box office number. I mean, for like the really quiet time of year that they sure. now, it did really well. It did a lot better than We Are Your Friends, which we were looking at the box office numbers before earlier, made something like $1.8 million really for the weekend. It. Not for that Friday, was like a huge not for one day. Too. Like I mean, it was out in like two. It was out in yeah. over two thousand theaters. It made something like seven hundred dollars a screen. Is it is one of the worst wide release openings I'm sure in recent recent history, if not all time. I and mean, it, that is really bad. Yeah, I mean, and wait, here's the kicker. Allison liked it. I did like it. <laughs> I it, you know it it has that right combination of like modest aims and like a perfect kind of role for Zac Efron, mm. which is like. The sincere bro, uh, which uh, he does really well. It's really, I think, the the main role that he can pull off, and it this is the the maybe most epic sincere bro role of all time. But yes, it is Zac Efron's attempt to be uh, you know get out of the San Fernando Valley where he and his <laughs> he and his boys grew up. There's a scene actually where they throw a party, and at the end, as they're all drunk, they're sitting around a pool and they sing Santeria by Sublime. The whole song? No, just parts of it. But that's like the song they all sing together, like it's the national anthem or something. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so Zac Efron wants to become, you know, a famous DJ, EDM. It's the new thing. The kids like it. Okay, and I don't know what that is. Electric dance music. Thank you. It's just we're it's raving again, except oh, you know, they have a new name different. for it. Yeah, now it's Molly. raving's too long of a word, man. I Molly need three. Le- I need three ecstasy. letters. Yeah, I refuse to say anything that's longer than three letters. Anyway, and then Wes Bentley is like the the oh, alcoholic. Like, still famous, but like you know, no longer really any good uh, DJ who takes Zac Efron under his wing. And I mean, like, this kind of sounds good as you're it, describing it. And it's it. also like it's uh, like hilarious the way West Bentley is written. Like he's like being played by you know late career Marlon Brando, but it's like 36 year old West Bentley. You know, he's just he's written like so pickled and like cynical and it's like the opposite of Redford. Yeah, exactly. And then Emily Ratajkowski. Now, if Redford had played the West Bentley part. Me. That would amazing. have been amazing. I would love to see him talk about DJ <laughs> about EDM. Yes, um, and then Emily Ratajkowski is uh, Wes Bentley's character's personal assistant slash girlfriend, but who of course ends up getting uh, dating Vincent sw- Chase, swept up with oh. Zac Efron's character. Okay, but I don't. I mean, this movie's aims are like it, you know, very straightforward, and it, it really manages them. I, I think like Matt Dentler, um, formerly of South by Southwest, put it best when he said something like. If this movie starred Joseph Gordon-Levitt and was at Sundance, it would have sparked a bidding war. <laughs> but it's is true. Like it's, but instead, it's a being put out by a big studio. And it Zac Efron. Zac Efron and, and it's, Bentley. it's directed by Max Joseph, one of the co-hosts of Catfish, the TV show. Uh-huh. And I think that it was really easy to make fun of when that trailer came out. And and I think that a lot of other people just never <laughs> saw a reason to want to see it in the first place. I'll, I'll give it another reason that it flopped. Is that the worst title of of all time? Well, we are your friends. Yeah, and I don't like. It's not. It's it's not an EDM. Song. Like I mean, that's like the Justice song, which is like from 
I don't know how old that is now. Is it like a decade old at this point? You're asking the wrong guy. Anyway, but like it's also like not an act. Is it a Michael McDonald song? No, then I don't know it. I don't know when it came out. But either way, it, what does it have to do with being a DJ in Southern California? Well, anyway, I would say the if this this sounds like kind of weird praise, but the best thing I would say about this movie is that it feels like one of those 90s movies that tried so hard to kind of capture a scene that it mm. seemed, and I think I wrote this in my review, like it seems outdated right away, but in a charming way, right. you know, like, um, kind of like go. Yeah. Or like human traffic. Do you remember yeah. that movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. yeah. And that it has like a kind of nineties coming of age movie feel. Okay. So I think it'll probably do really well on television and when it comes around to streaming. I can't wait 30 years from now when we're seeing the oral history of We Are Your Friends and they're going to interview Allison as the one <laughs> critic who was all on board in the beginning. Me and David Ehrlich. Yeah, you guys will be the, uh, the, uh, the, the critical voices in the Grantland oral history of We Are Your Friends coming in 2045. Yeah. Um, so the other movie that we've both, both seen that is currently in theaters is No Escape, mm. the movie in which Owen Wilson, Lake Bell, and their two fake movie children <laughs> are terrorized by Southeast Asia in general. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty much it. <laughs> what are you implying that that's offensive, Allison? I don't understand. Uh, I just like. I mean, it's funny because like the movie is, I think, in like very B movie effective in it some is. ways. It's yes, it's pretty well made as it like is. a on the run movie. But I just the way it treats it's pretty poisonous. It's just terrible. Like yeah, it's, it's pretty set hard in to an defend. Unnamed South unnamed uh, South East Asian country. Asian country. Yeah. There's a coup. They shot it in Thailand, but they, they never say where they are. And, and at, there's a part where they want to try and get over the Vietnamese border, and Vietnam does not border on Thailand. So it's almost like they included it just to be like, we're cool, Thailand. <laughs> this is not you. <laughs> it's this not is about- someone else. It's, it's not you. It's yeah. me. Yeah. But like none of the Asian characters. Even, there's only one that has a name, even, and it's Kenny Rogers. Yeah, that is true. That is you are not exaggerating or lying. Yeah, and yeah. they're basically. I mean, they're they're shot like like. It's a monster movie, basically. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like if it could almost be an effective monster movie if it wasn't about an actual place on this yes. on this planet and treat like human beings like monsters. Yes, it's like the guys who made it, the Dowdle brothers, like they're pretty efficient technicians. They made uh, Quarantine, right? Which is like a very scary. Like uh, they re- it was the remake of Wreck, yeah. and I think they did de- uh, Devil, right? Which is yeah, a, you know, but, which has its moments. Yeah, you know, they're sort of the they're more Pepsi tapes, which I never saw. They're more horror, got horror, horror people guys, than action yeah. people, and this is definitely it's an action film, but with a really kind of at times almost nightmarish quality to it. And you're right, it's it's well made. It's just it just you can't like treat, especially like a, a part of the of the world. That gets represented in any kind of nuanced way so rarely on screen yeah. to just be shruggingly treated like that. I is... mean, they, they come up with an excuse why they're trying to kill Owen Wilson and his family, but it's, Even that, it's, it's so, pretty paltry. It's so half-baked. It's pretty paltry. And they, yeah. they do not attempt in any way to sort of leaven the sort of, you know, the, the evil Asian characters yeah. at all in any way. I will say there's one thing that I loved about this movie. Pierce you... Brosnan. Yes. Pierce Brosnan in this movie is... <laughs> amazing he is yeah he plays basically plays like real world james bond he does, except and, like sleazier well that's the thing it's like if james bond was <laughs> yes. a real guy he would be and he was sort of like aging he would be chewed up and spit out he would be miserable maybe not even miserable but just like cynical as hell he would get drunk all the time yeah. he would sleep with women and feel gross about it yes. but he'd also be incredibly charming and funny and likable and that's basically the guy he's playing in this movie and it is fantastic i got excited every time he came on the screen i regretted when he left i felt bad that the movie around him wasn't better i wish the whole movie was about him honestly it would have been a much better movie because also 
like, and this is just the text of the movie. Like, Owen Wilson and his family have done basically no research at all about the, the country they're going right. to. Which is actually, like, part of the explanation they eventually come up with as, like... But, like, Pierce Brosnan actually looks at these people as human beings. Right. <laughs> it's like, he actually knows the country and knows the history of it. Right. And, yes. Whatever, whatever this country is and yes. whatever that history might be. But he has a karaoke scene. He has a scene where he talks about putting, going to a brothel and putting on sweatpants. It is really... It's it's great. I hope the Oscars remembers No Escape just for his performance at the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it's not a movie that I would recommend. Mm, no. All right, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball now. That is our segment where we count down some new releases on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations that you guys so nicely sent into us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our Netflix My Lists. Allison, would you like me to go first, or do you want to go first? Why don't you go first, Matt? All right. All right, are you ready? Three new releases. All right, first up, one of my favorite thrillers from the 90s. It's In the Line of Fire, which is now available on Amazon Prime. Clint Eastwood stars as the last Secret Service agent who's still on active duty in the 90s, mind you, who's failed to protect... President Kennedy from assassination in Dallas all those years ago. He is now on the trail of a deranged killer who wants to murder the, the current president. He's played in a great performance by John Malkovich, who is actually, I was surprised to see this as I looked this up, he was actually nominated for an Oscar for In the Line of Fire. Interesting. But uh, yeah, it's just a really entertaining, solid Clint Eastwood versus Crazy Guy action film that's In the Line of Fire on Amazon Prime. Next up, one of the best documentaries of recent years, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is now back on Netflix. It's about uh, aging sushi chef Jiro Ono, who runs the most acclaimed sushi restaurant, uh, I guess, in the world. And it's about his life and his work. And in a larger sense, it is about the pursuit of perfection and greatness. And actually, we could have done this as a uh, as a movie about work and working life and set in a sushi restaurant, but... The office politics of that place are pretty important to that movie as well. So uh, it would have fit pretty nicely in there. You can find more about this movie. We've talked about it before. on All the way back on SVU number 22. That's Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is now available on Netflix. Finally, a, a, a whole bunch of trauma movies got added to Amazon Prime recently. And I'm going to recommend one I was tangentially connected to. I was the intern to the editor that cut this movie, which is called Apocalypse Soon. The Making of Citizen Toxie. It's a feature-length, behind-the-scenes documentary about the very troubled production of the fourth, the fourth Toxic Avenger movie. And it is fascinating, and it is funny, and I promise you, I'm not just saying this because I worked on this movie. It is a very revealing, warts-and-all documentary about super indie movies. And it is it is the sort of stuff you do not see in most you know, making of movies about movies because they're usually puff pieces. They're back slapping. They're about how everyone's having a great time and it's all great and blah, blah, blah. That is not what this is about. This movie will make you never want to make a movie. And I, I admire that about it. Uh, it is Apocalypse Soon, The Making of Citizen Toxie. That is available now on Amazon Prime. All right. Well, how about two listener recommendations? All right. Our first recommendation is from Chris H., Chris writes, here's something I watched recently on streaming. Thanks for doing the show. It's a great listen. While there has been much well-deserved hand-wringing over the apparent death of the romantic comedy, including by yourselves, at the end of your Beyond the Lights episode, film fans who rue the lack of quality in this genre from Hollywood would do well to turn their eyes east 
where filmmakers in Hong Kong and Bollywood continue to churn out optimistic and worthwhile films of this type. One representative example is Pang Ho Chung's 2010 film Love in a Puff. It is about the aftermath of Hong Kong's 2007 office smoking ban that exiled nicotine addicts outside where they were forced to gather in groups to smoke. He's an ad executive. She's a cosmetic sales girl. She's got a boyfriend. He's newly unattached. Will their budding friendship of smokes and text messages develop into something more in the burgeoning neon metropolis that surrounds them? While this plot may seem to be nothing new, it's quite sharply written and funny with great lead performances and some stylish direction that carry this sweet tale off almost to perfection. It's available on Amazon, Google Play, Hulu, and YouTube. Thanks. That's from Chris H. And again, the name of the film is Love in a Puff. And we have one more recommendation here from Melissa. Her Twitter handle is at Melissa underscore Romulus. She writes, Dear Allison and Matt, last weekend on a vacation at a lake house with some friends. I hope it wasn't the lake house. The Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock lake house. I mean, because then time travel would have had to have been involved. Yeah, but like mailbox time travel. Yeah, true. But then how would they have gotten any postage out? There are a lot of questions about that movie that I have. Yeah. All right. Anyway, last weekend on a vacation at a lake house with friends, I happily took on the task of picking all the movies. I'm too much of a punk for blood and guts horror, but they told me they wanted to be creeped out. By the end, everyone agreed they would never have sex again. So I guess mission accomplished. I think the only streaming film we watched that you guys haven't mentioned before is 1967's Belle du Jour. While I don't agree with the message, if any, the film concludes with at the end, it's a favorite of mine that almost 50 years later leaves up leaves us with so much to talk about i also wanted you to know that my birthday party tomorrow starts with a schwarzenegger double feature of total recall and predator wow now that is a birthday thanks for the amazing show your humor friendship and intellect make every show a special treat that's from melissa at melissa underscore romulus thank you melissa and happy birthday i hope it was a schwarzenegger-rific birthday Oh, and we should mention, I think that that is Belle du Jour streaming on Hulu subscription, like a lot of Criterion films. Yes. Um, all right. And one from your Netflix My List. You gave me number seven. And right now, number seven on my My List is The X-Files, the TV show The X-Files, which is getting revived. As everything is As these everything days. is these days. Nothing dies. And I, I never really watched The X-Files when it was on. And people have told me, you know, it's one of those 90s shows that was really great. It was, there was a reason it became so popular. And I actually it's, – it's that low down because I've watched a few episodes. It is good. I wish I kind of had time to really kind of dig into it. Yeah, it takes – the first season, it, it takes a while to kind of settle into – to get really good yeah yeah I, I watched like three or four episodes so far and i enjoyed it i mean it's like the kind of thing where i could see if i you know didn't have to wa- constantly watch movies and tvs tv shows every single day for work i would be watching it every single night to, to, to plow through it and i'll try to watch more because i'm i can't wait to see the revival right because everything's getting revived these days so yeah that's that's my number seven uh, x files the i believe the whole series is available right now on netflix Allison, are you ready to uh, count down your uh, your picks here? So ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up is a movie that Matt Singer will never watch, White God. I was, was going to say, I bet it's White God. Yep, new to Netflix. This is a Hungarian film from Kornol Madruzko. I hope that got that somewhere near right. It was the winner of the Uncertain Regard Prize at Cannes last year, as well as the coveted Palm Dog Award. 
And it's uh, kind of a metaphor on Hungarian like race relations, essentially, in which the government starts imposing fines on anyone who owns a dog who is not a purebred. And the main character, a girl named Lily, is forced by her father to abandon her beloved mutt, Hagen, because of this. And Hagen becomes basically the protagonist and his adventures eventually come around to sparking a dog uprising in which dozens and dozens of dogs take over the streets of the city. I did not like this as much as, as some critics did. It was very popular at, at Cannes, but I will say it contains some of the most impressive like dog acting that I've ever seen, in, like Hagen especially, but also just the amount of real dogs that have to... But don't horrible things happen to dogs in this movie? I mean, Isn't is... that why I wouldn't watch it? Well, the reason you won't watch it is because there is a dog fighting interlude. Yeah, I can't, I can't handle that. And I know how you feel about that. Yeah. But it is also kind of triumphant in that take back the night kind of way with mm. dogs. Uh, so I, I will say, if you are at all interested in seeing real dogs act... <laughs> Like, like be treated as heroes of the movie. Right. Uh, White God definitely offers that. So next up, new to Amazon Prime, is Timbuktu. This is the latest movie from Adorame Sisiko, who is, the, you know, the great African filmmaker. This one is set in Timbuktu, in Mali, uh, inspired by a time in, I think, 2012, when it was occupied by jihadists. And it focuses on a family of cattle herders whose lives slowly spiral into tragedy after this chain of events that starts off when one of their cows damages a fisherman's net. And um, this is definitely, this, this movie is a tragedy and I think a very kind of quietly angry protest against, against the very idea of jihadist rule. But it's also absurdist, um, both in kind of steadily taking in the hypocrisy of the militants who are patrolling the city um, and who can't, they're enforcing this version of Sharia law that they can't, don't even really try to live up to themselves co- consistently. And I don't know, the the ways, the imperfection and the humanity of the, the soldiers coexists in this very brutal and very effective way with the harshness of the laws they're trying to enforce. This is a movie that includes stonings and whippings uh, and is, is really remarkably well done. Uh, not the easiest movie to watch, but definitely one that is worth a try. That is Timbuktu, now streaming on Amazon Prime. And finally, new to Fandor is Mikey and Nikki. Uh, the great Elaine May only directed four films. Uh, did not have an easy time directing all of them. And uh, they've not also always been easy to see. Mikey and Nikki, her 1973 film starring Peter Falk and John Cassavetes, is out of print on DVD. And, you can, you know, one of those things where you find them on Amazon for like $200. Mm. Um, but Fandor is now streaming it. Uh, Cassavetes plays Nikki, a low-level gangster who calls on his best friend Mikey, played by Falk, to help get him out of town because he's, he's convinced that uh, a mobster is going to try and kill him. And it is this kind of rambling a lot of improvisation look at their friendship and maybe the limits or the history of it so that is mikey and nikki now streaming on fandor all right how about two listener recommendations Uh, first up is one from bruce in portland who writes i wanted to give you a heads up about an unusual storytelling film the primary instinct that will be available on on on-demand platforms on september 22nd I haven't seen the film, but after I heard my first episode of The Tobolowski Files, episode 59, I went back and listened to every previous episode and have listened to every subsequent episode. The best analogy I can use to describe Stephen Tobolowski's storytelling is to say he's a Spalding Gray-esque monologuist. 
The film, The Primary Instinct, is a monologue that he created for a special live recorded performance backed by the Tobolowski Files fans. I have no doubt that it's every bit as good as the material on the Tobolowski Files or that he'll perform it every bit as well. I would expect no less from a character actor with 238 credits and counting. Anyway, I just wanted to alert you to a movie that might fly under the radar, but for listeners who are fans of the live performance monologue and really good storytelling, this might be one not to miss. Um, I'm a fan of the the Tobolowski Files. And of course, this movie is directed by your friend and mine, Dave Chen. Yeah, I've actually... I. Not only have I seen the movie, I saw a rough cut of the movie. I offered some notes. I'm thanked on uh, the movie. I So you're welcome, I, yeah. Bruce. I was sent a rough cut of the movie, too, and then failed to watch oh, well, it in a, a timely fashion. You're a bad person. And then got but lectured I'm not, and I... by Dave Chen. Sorry, Dave Chen, if you're listening to this again. Yeah, but uh, no, it is. If you're a fan of the Tobolowski Files, if you're a fan of Stephen Tobolowski, it's a very, it's a very interesting and well-made film. He is a great storyteller, and uh, I would recommend it as well. So that's a good that's a good one from was it Bruce? Bruce in Portland. Thank, Thank you, Bruce. Bruce, for that. And our second one is from Daryl in Washington D.C., who writes: I started listening to you guys right before your IFC podcast ended, and took to you immediately. I was very happy when Film Spotting gave you the opportunity to do a spinoff podcast, and I haven't missed an episode of SVU yet. Thank you, Daryl, for that. Um, I have a film suggestion for you. I just saw an absolutely hilarious film on Netflix last weekend entitled First Period. It's sort of a twisted take on the high school comedy subgenre. I'll warn you ahead of time. It can be quite silly, but I personally find it to be funny and entertaining. The two leads are men in drag playing high school best friends. I found their performances to be hysterical and worth the price of admission. Here's a little bit of the IMDb synopsis. New girl Cassie, played by Brandon Alexander III, and outcast Maggie, played by Dudley Bean, are easily the most awkward girls in high school. Together, they decide the way to win the hearts of the cute boys and popular girls are to come in first at the high school talent show. Uh, But rivals Heather, other Heather, and their popular boyfriends, Brett and Dirk, will stop at nothing to keep our heroes a laughingstock of the school. It's going to take makeovers, courage, and maybe even a little rapping to beat them in true 80s style. Uh, again, writes Daryl, it's a very silly film, but funny. I know you two are good about appreciating films such as these, accepting them for what they are, and I thought it was worth a suggestion. So that is First Period, and it is streaming on Netflix. Thank you, Daryl. All right, and how about one film from your my list, not your watch list. Not my watch list, which I feel like I have not done a very good job filling out. No. Um, But you gave me number 17, which is Like Someone in Love. This is... The Japanese language film that is written and directed by uh, Abbas Kiarostami, who is one of the great Iranian filmmakers, and it stars Rin Takanashi and Ryo Kase. And you know, it was a twenty. I think it was like uh, came out in twenty twelve. It was one that I missed when it was in theaters. Kiarostami is unquestionably a great filmmaker, but. You hadn't I seen this one? Haven't seen this one. Oh. Yeah. And not you know, one of his best, but it has right. some very strong parts. Right. That's what I'd heard. And it's yeah. just been kind of hovering in my my list ever since. All right, all right. Well, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. We have three small to Really small uh, American indie films, recent American films, new American films. Uh, it's an interesting batch. I'll be curious to see which one wins. Allison has the first option, and it is? It is Queen of Earth. This is the latest film from Alex Ross Perry, 
uh, the filmmaker behind such misanthropic and well-received films as The Color Wheel and Listen Up Philip. Also, Matt Singer's former co-worker at Kim's Video, Once Upon a Time. Uh, but this is uh, stars Elizabeth Moss, who was one of the stars in Listen Up Philip, um, obviously from Mad Men, as, long as, as well as Catherine Watterson. Um, who was in Inherent Vice? Inherent Vice, and uh, it is basically the story of a psychological breakdown that is shot like a horror movie. Uh, the trailer's got a lot of great like throwback voiceover, and uh, I have not seen it yet, but I am Me actually neither. going to see it soon. And looking forward to it. I feel like there's a lot of interesting stuff always to talk about. Alex Alex's is a talented movies. guy. Yep. And also, then we can talk about the fact that he's set to write. The new Winnie the Pooh movie. He is. He is indeed. <laughs> but that is Queen of Earth. I think, you know, it sounds uh, very rich topic-wise. So uh, that's number one. It's available on VOD and for rent. All right. Our second option, also available on VOD and for rent at Amazon, iTunes, a bunch of places. You've already mentioned it on the show, Allison. It is Digging for Fire. It's the new film from Joe Swanberg, a filmmaker we're very familiar with. And this film, as Allison mentioned, stars Jake Johnson and Rosemary DeWitt. I will read you the plot description one more time, very briefly. It's the discovery of a bone and a gun send a husband and wife on separate adventures over the course of a weekend. And that is called Digging for Fire. And it is directed by Joe Swanberg. And it stars Jake Johnson and Rosemary DeWitt. And I'm sure we could... Have we ever done a Mumblecore podcast? I don't think we have. We probably did on the IFC podcast years and years ago, but I don't think we've ever done it on Filmspotting SVU. It's like we're rebooting Mumblecore, even. Yes. Well, we could... So many years past. I mean, we could talk about sort of the where are they now, Mumble... Or we could say, you know, like people... What what people have gone on to do, whether we could assess the quote-unquote movement as it was and as it is and... See what it brought us and gave us and whether the films were worth talking about. That could be pretty interesting. That's Digging for Fire. You can rent it on Amazon and iTunes. It's also available on VOD. All right. And last up is a movie called Fort Tilden. It is also available for rent and on VOD. It is uh, a comedy, though it's of an extremely abrasive sort of comedy. Uh, Directed by Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers stars Bridie Elliott, who is Chris Elliott's daughter, and Claire McNulty as two 25-year-old hipsters living in Williamsburg and who decide to, based on like meeting these two cute guys at a party the night before, decide to go down to Fort Tilden, which is a beach, a slightly hard-to-get-to beach, like kind of on the other end of Brooklyn, okay. and then have an epic day trying to get there. And this movie, if you've ever thought that Girls, the TV show, was not hard enough on its main characters and their sense of privilege and their general hipster awfulness. This movie takes care of that for you. I see. Yes. And I actually, I liked it a lot. It also, it won, uh, I think, the jury prize at South By last year. So I'm not the only one. Um, and I don't know. Maybe we can talk about movies with obnoxious main characters oh, and that TV would be... shows. Because this one definitely, like... That would apply. It leans very hard into it. And it does not spare people. Allison um, obviously has seen this one. I haven't. Yes. So, uh, but that sounds like a good idea for a theme as well. I would be interested uh, in that. So that's Fort Tilden. It's available yes. for rent and on VOD. All right. Well, what movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to SVU at FilmSpottingSVU.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at FilmSpottingSVU.com. And this is important. Your vote must be received by Friday, September 4th at noon. You only have a few days 
uh, to vote this time. We're cutting the voting short because Allison and I will both be at the Toronto Film Festival next week when we're going to normally be recording. So we've got to record early. So we've got to make the deadline for voting earlier. So that is why the voting uh, will be will be a little briefer than usual, unfortunately. But this way you'll be able to get the episode on time and uh, we won't have to uh, struggle to find time to record when we're at Toronto. It'll just be better for everyone. Trust us. So again, one more time, make sure you vote early. Friday, September 4th at noon is the cutoff. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account at FilmSpottingSVU, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be out hopefully uh, around the usual time as scheduled around Tuesday, September 15th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the movies and the occasional TV show we discuss on the episode. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's music at VinceVandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice. And where we sure shit. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys. Uh, so always make sure to send those in. We always read them and deeply appreciate them. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>